experts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join me today. Hope you all had a great 4th of July. I know I'm a little late, but I only do the show every other week. June has ended. We've closed out the second quarter, which means we're about ready to launch ourselves into earnings season. Time just flies by, doesn't it? And I'll talk about some of the early, early results in just a few minutes here. But first, what are we expecting from this quarter? Or I guess it was really last quarter, right? Well, whatever. You know what I mean. According to Refinitiv, net income is expected to increase by 65%. Earnings per share, they're expected to be up over 68%. And that 3% difference is just because of share buybacks. You know what? That's an oh my goodness in my book. Truly spectacular if it works out that way. And how does that happen? How do earnings grow over 68%? Well, it's just like the inflation numbers. The earnings growth numbers are calculated using last year's second quarter, which of course was the worst quarter of the pandemic. So let's not get too carried away when you hear on TV that earnings are up 60-70%. We hope last year was a one-time thing. Now, if you compare the expectations now to the second quarter of 2019, basically, if you try and normalize it, we'll find that the earnings growth is sitting at just over 12%. And that's still pretty respectable, but it's not the 60% you might hear on TV here in the next couple of weeks. Still very respectable, 12%. To me, that just means that earnings are normalizing, expectations are still reasonable. And that's because economic growth is still pretty robust. Yeah, it's come off the boil. It's slowing down. But like earnings growth, as I say, it's pretty respectable. Inflation fears, well, they've settled out a bit here. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that we're still going to face some challenges along the way. And for investors, the question is, well, what do we do now? If you take a quick look at the market, just glance at it, you're going to find out that Stocks are pretty expensive. Heck, the S&P 500 is trading more than two standard deviations above its long-term average. More than 30 times trailing earnings. More than 21 times expected earnings for the next 12 months. That's just expensive. I don't know of any other way to say it. That's just, it's unsustainable is what it is. So how does the ship right itself? Well, you could have stocks pull back in a big way. And while I was sitting here doing my calculations, you know, a 20% pullback would put it in territory where it's neither undervalued or overvalued. So kind of, eh, you know, that's a 20% pullback. Or you could have earnings continue to grow and stock prices just stay about where they are now. So stock prices don't go up. In other words, it allows the earnings to catch up to the prices. Or you could have the combination of these two. Stocks fall some, 
and the earnings keep growing at a pretty good clip. But whatever the case might be, the returns from stocks are likely going are likely going to be a bit more modest than they have been. Which means what I'd be doing is and what I am doing is looking towards dividend paying stocks. Now, on a long-term basis, the total return uh, the total return from stocks comes from three components. And I think it's important that you understand this. The total return of a stock comes from three components. Multiple expansion, basically what people are willing to pay for a dollar of earnings, earnings per share growth, and dividend income. And dividend income, I'm lumping in the dividend plus the dividend growth over time. That's going to determine what you're going to make on a stock. That's the formula. And if you look around on the internet, you're going to find numerous studies that use different time periods and methods for calculating the actual amount of return that dividends are responsible for. There's tons of them out there. Excuse me. There was an article in the Financial Analyst Journal a while back called Dividends and the Three Dwarfs. Just dividends and the Three Dwarfs. That says from 1802 to 2002, that's a 200-year time frame. Dividends plus the growth in dividends accounted for more than 5.8% of the total 7.9% annualized return. Think about that. Dividends accounted for 5.8% of a total 7.9%, basically about 60 or 70% of the total return over the 200 years. Those numbers are pretty compelling. My only issue with it is I don't have a 200-year time frame. My point here is that I've never really seen a study that says anything different than, than this. Basically, that's dividends do matter over the long term. And I think a focus on the dividend payers, if you really believe that on a long-term basis, your overall returns are going to be enhanced by dividends, then focus on the dividend pay, uh, but then focusing on the dividend payers will naturally lead you to the ownership of my type of companies. Those are the ones that generate cash. And I do mean ownership, you know, longer term buy and hold so that you can benefit from the growth in the dividends. If you really think about that formula I gave you and the fact that maybe 60% of total returns come from dividends, then you'll probably focus on what's important in stock selection. And that is number one, how much cash does a stock generate? In other words, the real earnings called free cash flow, because that's what they're able to pay the dividends from. And number two, how predictable are those cash flows? That's real important. So let me go back to number one here. How much free cash flow does a company generate? Well, you can go to a company's annual report or their quarterly earnings. The internet makes it real easy, right? So once you have one of these two documents, you look at the consolidated statement cash flows. And you just simply need to understand how the numbers work on the statement. It's really simple. You can do it yourself. I've talked about this before. In the consolidated statements, the cash flows, if you do it right, you're going to see over a three-year period how much free cash flow the company is generating. 
and I would use that three-year average because a one-year a one-year look can get very distorted. But what I really want you to uh, what I really want to focus this discussion is is on number two: how predictable are the free cash flows? Now, a food type company, well, that's pretty easy. Take Pepsi for example, symbol PEP. You got to figure that management is going to be reasonably intelligent enough to defend the brand name, and they will. Thus, I don't think it's a heroic assumption to figure that free cash flow growth of X percent a year will occur because of population growth, growth plus increased efficiencies, and maybe even taking some market share away from Coca Cola or other snack major snack makers, which they are, by the way. With a bank, it's pretty close to the same thing. You have population growth, growth in savings, and growth in the economy. That's all going to translate into growing free cash flows. With the rails, growth of the economy, that's going to dictate how rapidly their free cash flows grow. If you focus on dividends and free cash flow, that's going to lead you to examining the balance sheet too. Remember, when you're looking at the balance sheet, high leverage can kill you because the cash flow gets diverted towards servicing the debt instead of paying the dividend. So balance sheets matter. It's as simple as that. And another reason I would focus on dividends is their spendability. You can actually count on them. It can help you pay the bills. You know, the, the stock market, it can take its the capital appreciation away from you in five minutes. But the dividend is already in your pocket and they can't take that back. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think you have to load up on dividend-paying stocks, meaning that's all you own. But I do believe that you should have a good portion of your portfolio in stocks that are paying a decent, well-covered dividend that can grow over time. One place I would look at now is the banks. If you've listened to the show for really any amount of time, you know that I like the banks as long-term investments. As expected, the banks have been able to clear the Federal Reserve's stress test, and now they have the latitude to resume share repurchases and increase their dividends. The largest banks surely have the capacity to be generous to shareholders after several quarters of bumper profits on the back of record trading revenue. The six largest banks, that's JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo City, Goldman, and Bank America, those six, by my estimation, have excess cap- capital of over $150 billion. And we've already seen a number of them announce huge increases to their dividends. They're already, uh, they're, the group as a whole, the banks, they're already at the front of the pack with a roughly 3% total yield as a group. And I said that's likely to increase further too. One that I've purchased for myself and for clients over the last six months is Goldman Sachs, symbol GS. Now, remember, you always need to do your own research here. You just don't take my word for it because you heard something on a podcast. You saw something on TV. No, 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 no. Got to get in there and figure out if it makes sense for you. Don't take anybody's word for it. Well, Goldman Sachs, they reported earnings this week. And I tell you, it was a blockbuster quarter for them. And it was driven by strength in their investment banking and really big gains 
in the company's private equity portfolio. They said on Tuesday morning, this past Tuesday morning, that they earned $15.02 a share versus what the analysts were uh, expecting of $10.25. So it was just a massive beat. And most of that was because of the huge gains in their private equity portfolio, which most investors, including myself, just think that's unsustainably high. So you sit or you look at it and you kind of discount that number of quite a bit because yeah, it's not going to happen every quarter. It's not uh, predictable, high quality earnings. But we're talking about dividends today and Goldman Sachs increased their dividend by 60% to $2 a share, which means it's paying about uh, a 2% dividend now. And you look at it and you say, mm, that's kind of low compared to the group, but they do still have plenty of room to continue to that uh, continue to grow that dividend going forward. And the stock is up quite a bit, which diminishes the payout too. So combination of things. Now, don't forget that companies can also return cash back to shareholders through the dividends and share buybacks. And I think those are going to be on the rise here, but that's for another day. So you could see Goldman buying back more and more of their shares too. You know, banks are funny animals in that when the market is in growth mode, people value them on the PE ratios. But when the market looks a little shaky and is stumbling, then they value them on book value. Since, since, since it seems like we're in growth mode now, We'll look at it on a P.E. ratio. The stock been sharply higher this past year. Again, that's why you have a lower dividend. Still, I think it trades at a low multiple of earnings. Based on the current consensus for the second half of this year, Goldman may earn about $50 a share for the full year. Do the math. That means that stock fetches less than eight times this year's projected earnings. Remember I said the market was trading at about 21 times this year's estimates? Well, here you have Goldman Sachs trading at eight times. So it's a big discount to the market. Banks usually do trade at a discount to the market, but you know, not that big. I like Goldman Sachs. I like GS. I'd add it to it on pullbacks. U.S. Bancor is another one, symbol USB. It's yielding about 3%. Same scenario. Now that they've passed the stress test, they can return more uh, to the shareholders through dividends and buybacks. I like USB. I think it's actually one. Of, I, I think they're the best bank overall in the sector. And I think the top spots, if you're looking for dividends and dividend potential dividend increases, I think they're going to be the financials and the energy stocks. I haven't talked a lot about energy here lately. I should probably do that here in uh, the next couple of shows. But I don't want you to forget about core holdings either. I mentioned Pepsi earlier, simple PEP. I consider that a core holding. It has a great balance sheet. It's very predictable. Pays nearly a 3% dividend. They, just like Goldman Sachs, they reported earnings on Tuesday morning too. And the stock popped. Get that a little play on words there. Pepsi popped. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> mostly 
the reason why the stock went up was because their earnings were really good. And let's face it, Pepsi stock hasn't been doing all that great this year. It's like well behind the market so far. So it has some catching up to do here. Maybe this uh, earnings report is the catalyst for that. Company reported overall sales for the quarter, $19.2 billion. That was 7% ahead of the consensus forecast. Net income came in at $2.4 billion. That was 13% ahead of forecast. And the real number, earnings per share, they came in at $1.72, which topped the consensus estimates by about 12%. So here you have a high-quality business. I think it's, I think it's much better than Coca-Cola, symbol KO, much better. And they're growing at a pretty decent clip. And they're paying a 3% dividend. I like Pepsi. It's a little bit expensive here at this point, but it is a core holding. So I'm willing to add a half position of a core holding at almost any price because my time frame for owning it is so long. Okay. I think I've used up my allotted time for today. As Arnold says, I'll be back, but I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, remember... It's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. I'm Eric Whiteman, and this has been Common Sense Investing. Those of the hosts that may not necessarily be those of XML Financial Group. Information provided should not be construed as personalized investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or engage in a particular investment strategy. You should consult your personal financial advisor before investing to make sure an investment is appropriate for your situation. Furthermore, this information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor. Investing strategies such as asset allocation, diversification, or rebalancing do not assure or guarantee better performance and cannot eliminate the risk of investment losses. There are no guarantees that a portfolio employing these or any other strategy will outperform a portfolio that does not engage in such strategies. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.